Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So I just want to start by um, thanking Dr. Spivey and Joel McReynolds and really the kind of the entire adult ministry for sort of giving me this opportunity. It was um, very, uh, it was humbling, I'll put it that way. So I don't, I don't take this responsibility uh, lightly. I'll start by um, reading the passage today, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, and then I'll uh, sort of go through the passage verse by verse, kind of giving commentary uh, and application as we go along. So let's go ahead and turn our minds and hearts to the scripture that we'll be reflecting on today. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. But by the way, I'm reading from the New English translation. And live in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, as these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral, impure, or greedy, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let nobody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that each one of us, as we listen to the proclamation and the teaching of your word, would be edified, encouraged, convicted, that we would have whatever response is appropriate for the state of our hearts. Father, but I pray especially that we would be firmly grounded in scripture. I pray not that you would give me eloquence, but that you, your name would be exalted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I was meditating on this passage and preparing for this sermon, I, um, I thought about the time I got my first job. Uh, I got my first job in 2016, right after graduating, and I started working with my dad, who at the time, uh, well, he's still today working as a painter at a uh, paint body shop. So he was able to ask his boss if she would be willing to give me a job, and she gave me a job as a uh, part of the custodial staff. I spent 10 hours a day uh, sweeping floors and picking up trash can, uh, trash bags and just generally cleaning the shop, which if you've ever cleaned an auto shop, you know that that is truly a futile task that will bring Ecclesiastes to mind. Um, an auto shop is never clean and will never be clean, and it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> um, but... It was interesting when, when my dad told me that I had gotten the job and I'd be starting in two weeks, I, I was surprised how nervous my parents were. And so I, I asked my mom one night, why are you so nervous? Like, vis visibly, for those two weeks, they were 
they were antsy about it. And my mom said, well, we're afraid that you'll be lazy. I thought, what? (laughs) Um, I had graduated valedictorian of my high school graduating class. I am the opposite of lazy, or so I thought. Um, But evidently, the skills that you learn with regard to schoolwork did not translate my parents' mind to the workplace. And so I'm riding in my dad's truck early the first, the morning of my first day, and he says, son, make me proud. What in, what in sweeping floors and switching out trash bags is going to make you proud? And then I realized, especially as I started my first couple of weeks, that something in my parents' reputation was on the line. Their firstborn son was getting his first job. And if I did not perform in the workplace well, especially in front of my dad's own coworkers, it would be very embarrassing. It would make it seem as if they had not instilled the right values in me. My performance was contingent or My dad's own sense of having raised me well was contingent on how I performed in the job. Now, what I found surprised me, and I guess surprised them, I had a pretty strong work ethic. But I had seen my dad work 10 to 12 hour days for 20 years providing for my family. Well, almost 20 years. That sense of a strong work ethic didn't really have to be taught. It was instilled in me by my just watching him work and watching how hard he worked to provide for us. I wanted, it was natural in me to want to be like my dad. And so I found that I actually, and after the end of the first day, my boss would say, you know, you don't have to be that serious about cleaning. It is just an auto shop. It was natural for me to want to be like my dad. And so this desire to imitate my, my parents and the sense of the virtues they instilled in me is something that if any of us had strong homes where we grew up, we know that that's something that we find in ourselves. We want to be like our parents. There's a natural proclivity to imitate those above us, whether it's a mentor, a family member, grandparents, parents, even a friend that we we notice has some quality that we don't have and that we want, we're going to see how they exemplify it. But with people, there's something very important here. People are a mixture of virtues and vices. All of us have sins, some of them habitual, that are very hard for us to, to break. All of us have qualities, or at least most of us have qualities, at least something that's good, some good habit. My parents, for example, are very hospitable, and that's been an enduring example for me. There's a process of discernment where you have to discern between their virtues, their good character qualities, and their vices, their bad character qualities. You have to separate the two and choose virtue, and that's a huge part of growing up. And it's something we learn as we gain uh, friends and mentors throughout our entire lives. 
what Ephesians 5.1 calls us to do is to imitate God himself. And naturally, if you have an appropriate view of yourself and an appropriate view of God, you're going to go, what? Imitate God? I can't imitate the creator of all things. The one who is so self-existent that everything outside of himself is dependent on his existence. The eternal, the timeless one. Perfectly holy, unapproachable. If you even touched the Ark of the Covenant, burned on the spot because he's that holy. And I'm supposed to imitate him. What does that mean? And so what I see as the central question to address in this passage is, how on earth do we imitate God? What does it mean to imitate God? Well, we can get at it, at least from the side, by saying what it definitely isn't. What it definitely isn't is to say that, it's not to say that we ought to become gods. I'm not creating any universes anytime soon. I'm never going to become self-existent. I may be immortal when I go into eternal life. When we all go into eternal life, we will be immortal. I will never be eternal. There are some parts of God's nature that by its very necessity, only he can have. So it can't mean that we're going to become gods. That would be blasphemy. Instead, what it must mean is that and I think this is the, the context of the passage would suggest this, we're supposed to imitate God's holy character, his moral character. We're supposed to see what God is like, how, how it has been revealed to us what God is like, and then imitate his character qualities. And obviously because he's God, it's all virtue and no vice. The vice is me. That's my problem to deal with. When it's human mentors, I have to discern between their vices and their virtues, choose virtue. When it's God, I just see vice in myself and say, I must reject it in humility and seek the Lord himself. So let's start with verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And live in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Notice I emphasize the three times love is mentioned in the English. Now, in the Greek, this is where I get the most nervous. In the Greek, the word agape isn't used all three times. But the, each word that isn't Agape itself is derivative of agape. In, in the first instance, as dearly loved children, it's an adjective, agapetos. In the second instance, in verse 2, live in love, it's agape. And in the third instance, as Christ loved us, it's agapao, the verb. And so there are three different senses of love invoked in this single statement and connected to what it means to be like God, to imitate God. So the first part of imitating God is by conforming ourselves to his character in terms of virtue. 
What is God like? And the central aspect of that is love. So let's look at the first instance. We are to imitate God as dearly loved children. Other translations say beloved. So this is an adjective. It describes us. But the noun describes us too. Yes, we are beloved, but we're also children. And as we've been going through all of the letter to the Ephesians, what we have seen is that the gospel is way more radical than we thought it was. You might have thought that when you had your sort of conversion experience, you realized your need for the Lord, you, you in humility, confessed your sins to him. You just thought you were forgiven. What Ephesians says is, oh no, it's way more than that. You've been given the Holy Spirit as a stamp, a seal, a down payment that guarantees your inheritance. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter. In other words, your salvation involves a change in status, not a change in degree. Salvation in Christ changes what kind of person we are. You don't just become, in, in, a, in, a, in an incremental sense, God's son or daughter. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you're his. And that change in status has consequences. This is consistent with the language of the entire letter. Chapter 1, verse 5 we are described as, and, and again, this is the New English translation, we are described as legal heirs. There's a legal sense in which we are God's sons and daughters. We have a share in that which is Christ's. Chapter 1, verse 11, we are called God's own possession. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Chapter 2, verse 22, corporately we are called as the church a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are the place, the location, where God meets earth. And then several times throughout the letter, implicitly, we are referred to as saints. Those who are called apart. Those who are holy. This is crucial because as we go through the rest of the passage, Paul is going to talk about sins to avoid. And he's going to give a stern warning in verse 5 that if we aren't careful in how we interpret it, or we aren't careful in our hermeneutics, we're going to end up thinking that, oh no, I've sinned, therefore I'm less God's child. That's clearly not what Paul is saying. It's inconsistent with the logic of the rest of the letter and even the logic of this passage so the first sense in which paul uses the word love or uses a derivative of that word is that we are recipients of god's love through christ jesus we have received his love in this change of status from one who is alienated from god to one who is a son or daughter the second sense in which the word is used and this time it's just agape it's the word itself for God's love. It's conceived of as a virtue. We're told to live in love. In other words, our lives ought to be reflective of God's love. It ought to be characterized by God's love. In other places in the New Testament, 
reread what characterizes a life that is not characterized by love. We see hatred, strife, immorality, and so on and so forth. For Paul, there's no middle ground. You might wrestle with sin, and we'll talk about that. But a life that's characterized by, as the life that's characterized by love is categorically not the same as the life of a person who is not in God's household. So there are two aspects of virtue that are kind of in the background here. It's it's developed by practice and habit. It's something that you have to practice in what you do. You could say, and we see this in, uh, for example, James, that if you see a person in need and you say, go and be filled, but you don't actually give them something to eat, you haven't actually loved the person. You haven't acted in virtue. You've just talked about virtue. The second aspect is that it's a learned from the example of a moral exemplar. So this concept comes out of uh, Greek philosophy, but obviously it intersects here. This idea that there is someone who is more advanced in the virtue than I am, and so I have to learn from them. That's true between brothers and sisters in Christ, just as much as it's true between us and God. You've probably had this relationship, or you will, the, the, the more mature you grow in Christ. You probably have had this uh, relationship before where you look at a brother or sister in Christ, another Christian, you get to know them, and you go, wow, that person's way better at that than I am. This person's way better at being compassionate. I struggle with compassion. I'm, a, I'm, I'm very hard on the truth. But that aspect of dealing with human subjectivity, I'm, I'm not good at that. And so I have to learn from those who are better at that than I am. And I have to watch how they interact with someone in a way that maintains the integrity of the truth in love, but is also compassionate. We have to learn from each other, but we also learn from the Lord. And that's the third aspect of love in the text. So at the end of verse 2, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. As I said, the word here is a verb. Love as an action. So love in this case is being demonstrated in what Christ has done. It's demonstrated in his giving himself up for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. The language there is reminiscent of the Old Testament. Old Testament language about burnt offerings offered to God on behalf of the people for the sins that they've committed. So atonement is what we ought to be thinking about. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? And this is one of those phrases that ought to bring to our minds as Christians the whole of the gospel. What has Christ done for me? Well, he's done quite a bit. We, we see that in Ephesians 1, one huge sentence about what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us. The offering uh, of Christ's body on our behalf and then our receiving the Spirit. But here it's just one phrase. He gave himself up for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering. That one phrase brings to mind the whole of the gospel. 
So what does it mean to live in love? It's to live in Christ's love. We haven't quite answered the question, have we? I mean, I'm not going to give myself up for your sins. That's a pretty futile thing to do. I could, I can't even give myself up for my own. I can't correct my own unrighteousness. How, how could I correct yours? It took a perfect sacrifice to correct the problem of our unrighteousness. But it is to realize that love is essentially self-sacrificial. It is looking at the person who is in need and saying, I will voluntarily give up something of myself for you. Maybe it's my material possessions. Maybe it's my time. Maybe it's my life. And some people are called to that situation. And this brings up another point that I, I think is very important, uh, particularly as you may or may not know, this month is Pride Month. We are being told by the world right now to live in love too. You might have heard it. That form of living in love says, accept the other person's view of reality, no matter whether it's true. Accept that person's lifestyle, no matter if it fits reality. We're being told things like, if a man calls himself a woman, just acknowledge it. That's what it means to love the person. But here I would stress the fact that to love a person cannot contradict truth. By lying to you, I do not love you. And yes, the truth might hurt your feelings, but it is what it is. You don't, you're not helping yourself or anyone else by living out of, out of uh, inconsistently with reality. If, God forbid, someone in here had cancer, and I knew that, I knew for certain that person had cancer, but I knew it would just destroy them. They'd be so distraught. They would go for days being depressed about the fact that they didn't know they had cancer, and now they realize they have cancer, so I just withhold it. We all recognize that would be evil. I might call what I'm doing loving the person, but in my actions I'm hating them. They could get treatment. Yes, the truth might hurt their feelings, but it doesn't do anything to help them by not telling them. So there are two ideas that I think are warring in our culture about what it means to love. One is love deferred to the person. You fit reality to that person's conception of it, and two people conceive of reality differently. You just hold the contradiction in your head because you're called to love both of them. And there's love deferred to the truth. Love that says what it means for me to love you is actually defined by God. It's not defined by you. It can't be defined by you. God is love. I'm called to conform to his standard, not to conform to yours. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be compassionate. Gender dysphoria is a very real thing. I've, I've had friends personally who have gone through it, and it is rough. I have seen uh, the extent to which it causes pain in that person. I don't even know what it's like. I couldn't imagine genuinely believing I was in the wrong body. 
that is an agonizing issue. And there are a lot of agonizing issues that don't line up with truth. If you were convinced you were a bunny rabbit, I'm not helping you by telling you you're fluffy. So I, I, we are called to be compassionate towards what is an agonizing problem, but we're not, ta- we're not called to fit reality to their conception of it. And that's going to take wisdom, right? That's going to take wisdom in getting to know the person. There's this conversation on, you know, to what, at what point do you affirm or acknowledge what they want to be called? And I won't get into all of that, but the point I'm driving towards is just to say that in order to live in love, we have to know what it is. And there's a whole discourse in the culture that's telling us what love is, and it's contrary to what God says love is. And that's going to get us in trouble, as it always has in the history of the church. And so we're just called to this new problem, relatively speaking. So part of what it means to imitate God is to live by modeling the same love that resulted in our salvation from the one who actually saved us, Jesus Christ. It's to fit his example. He is our moral exemplar. And he's being invoked as our moral exemplar in the text. He's the one we follow. He's, his is the example we follow. But there's a second aspect to what it means to imitate God, and it's to avoid vice. Remember that vice is a bad character quality. It's something that's not good. Notice, too, that that assumes an objective moral standard, right? That God defines what is good. And it's kind of, it's a funny thing when you do Christian theology, because what defines good? God. And part of what defines God is that he's good. It's circular, but not in a not in an illogical way. It's just to say that we have the standard in a person. It's a standard that we don't really have to wrestle to defend. He is who he is as he reveals himself to us through the scriptures. So what is vice? Everything that isn't him. <laughs> Everything that contradicts who God is, contradicts his nature. If to love is to imitate God, then not to love is to fail to imitate God. It's to contradict who he is. And Paul has some uh, examples of this in verses 3 through 5. But among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, as these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral, impure, or greedy, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So in verses 3 through 4, we see two lists of three vices and they're distinguished by how they're described so they're sort of listed together 
And then Paul will say something about that whole list. So there's a list of the three that are not fitting for the saints. Again, implicitly, what Paul is saying is that we Christians are saints. That it's not fitting for you if you are a believer. And it includes sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Now, sexual immorality and impurity are often listed together. There are several examples in Paul where he lists them together. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. There's a connection between the sexually immoral person and the impure person for obvious reasons. What you're doing uh, in a very unique way with sexual immorality is that you're taking your desires, your motivations, your beliefs, which are all somewhat immaterial, right? They're not, they're not physical things. And you're wedding them with your physical actions in your body. Paul tells us that when we, when we commit sexual immorality, we sin against our own body. There is something we do actually to our own physical cells that is degrading and that is out of step with the fact that we were created in God's image. And the fact that God actually has established a certain norm for sexuality, he created it, that we are not fitting. So impurity has this sense of defilement. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, it's contrasted with holiness. If you think of a, a thing that is holy, it's set aside for God's purposes. Something that is defiled falls outside of that which is for the Lord's purposes. Kind of in the background, you can hear this notion of ritual cleanness. So we don't follow those laws because there's no temple for us to go to and no instruments of the temple to consecrate. The idea is still there. We're God's instruments, and we defile ourselves when we commit these sins. And then the third one, greed <clears throat> or covetousness. You can think of this as existing in our, in our desires and motivations. In other words, before you've even done the thing that's sinful, you've thought and you've desired and you've been motivated, motivated by the thing that's sinful. The, I believe it's the 10th commandment. <clears throat> is you shall not covet. In other words, you shall not desire what is someone else's. It's not just you shouldn't take it, right? We already have that you shall not steal. It's you shouldn't even want it. <clears throat> Why is this important? It's important because in the Christian whose life is characterized by love, who is in Christ, a son or daughter of God, Covetousness or greed reflects a heart desiring earthly things. Or maybe a better word would be worldly things. It's okay to desire good food, for example. But specifically, it would be to desire those things above the Lord himself. That's why in verse 5, it's described as idolatry. We're 
placing that thing above the Lord. A thing which in itself isn't necessarily evil. It's agreed has to do with our motivations. Why are these things unfitting for the saints? They're unfitting exactly because we are holy in Christ. They're unfitting because we who were set set apart for God's purposes are living out of step with his purposes when we defile ourselves. I think it was C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity who said that, or who wrote, that uh, the problem isn't that human beings are too difficult to satisfy. It's not as if we have our standard for what will satisfy us and God really just can't, can't really get there. It's that we're too easy to satisfy. He says it's as if what God is offering to us is a paradise beyond imagination. Beauty that we could not even think of what it would be like to experience it. And instead, we want to busy ourselves with mud pies. We've been called to paradise. In other words, there's a sense in which in Christ, we ought to have a higher view of ourselves. Now, we also, we need to take seriously that we have a sin nature, that we are constantly being called, especially within a sinful world, back to that out of which we were saved. But our sense of our calling has got to be bigger than I was just forgiven. You were just forgiven, but that was step one. Step two and three and onward is for you to become part of God's holy people, for you to live it out. The part of the Christian walk that is degreed in the sense that it proceeds from one to two and, and you, you find yourself with more of it than what you had before is a sense in which we live consistently with what's already been declared of us in Christ. So we don't have this notion of antinomianism or I can just do whatever I want and I'll go to heaven anyway. I hope that's not what you're hearing. There is an expectation that we are going to live up to this calling. We have the Holy Spirit who changes our desires so that I not only do what's good, I want to do what's good. Because before I was in Christ, I didn't even want to do what was good. And then when I wanted to do what was good, I couldn't do it. God has changed my desires so that I want to do what's good. He's enabled me to do it. If I then spurn that and turn away from it, it puts into question whether, to quote a Christian counselor I used to follow, whether my wanter has even been changed. We have to have a higher view of what it means to follow Christ than just great, my sins have been forgiven. Living for God isn't putting aside all of those great things you would have gotten to do otherwise, but man, now you've got to follow some rules. It's, I'm being called to something that's transcendent, that's meaningful, and I've been equipped and been enabled to actually do it. And if I don't, it's just because of my stubbornness and we all see that in ourselves we're stubborn 
And it takes a lifetime to even hope to fit that ideal that we're given in really in the whole of the letter to the Ephesians, but also in this passage. So that's the first set of three vices. The second set of three vices have to do with speech, have to do with what we say and, and the contents of our speech, but also how we say it. It includes vulgar speech or obscenity, foolish speech, and coarse jesting. Now, if you have anything other than the New English translation, maybe you have the NASB or the ESV or the CSB, you might notice there are different words that are being used in the English here, and that's because Paul made it really fun for us and used words that are only used once right here. <laughs> and so this, these were the words that were the hardest to really nail down what they were supposed to mean. Uh, and unfortunately, the Strong's Concordance doesn't really make it easy because the Strong's Concordance uses really uh, archaic words. For example, uh, one that I saw for foolish speech was buffoonery. And then for coarse jesting, I saw scurrility. Wow. I did not know I was reading the dictionary. I was actually, thought I was reading Strong's Concordance. And then the third, and then under coarse jesting, ribaldry. What is, and then all of the references to the word that you find. If you look up the word ribaldry, just Google it. The references you get to the word are from Shakespeare. <laughs> That's how old this word is. We, we, we've, it's really difficult getting at what these terms mean. So let's think about vulgar speech. That one's probably the easiest one. Because if you think about vulgarity or obscenity, it's this idea that you're making light of things which are actually evil. Right? Vulgarity, vulgarity laughs at that which is immoral, defiled. So you could think of jokes involving sexually explicit terms or concepts that exult in sinful behavior or make light of sinful behavior. That one's probably the easiest one. Foolish speech, uh, it's, it's literally a compound word of uh, the, word, the Greek word for foolish. Moros, uh, I think it is. And then lego, which is a, word, a verb meaning to speak. It's, it literally means foolish speech. And that, that word buffoonery is helpful, at least in the sense of it's, it has this notion that you're making a fool of yourself. And the idea I, 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 the idea I think I, Paul is getting at, as best as I can understand, is that the opposite of foolish speech is actually speaking in a way that's dignified. And, and this is connected with understanding who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ are living, breathing, physical representations of Jesus. Not perfect ones. We're called ambassadors for Christ, and we understand that that is an ideal that we have to strive every day to live up to. But when I speak, and especially when the name Christian or follower of Christ or whatever is attached to who I am, and I make a fool of myself, in a sense I'm making a fool of Christ. I'm presenting him as one who would make a fool of himself in public. Instead, we need to act like image bearers. 
like a royal priesthood in Peter. And then coarse jesting was the hardest one, not least because of the archaic language. Scurrility is this idea of uh, putting someone down. It's abusive joking. Uh, if you think of uh, bullying, for example, making fun of someone, talking about someone's, someone's height, their hair, their shoes. That's a really common one for my brothers. The type of shoes they wear, whether they're name brand. And then ribaldry has this idea of lowbrow humor. Think of pranks. Right, or, or uh, one that I've talked about a lot before was lying to someone and saying, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you made, a, you made a joke. It's technically comedy, but in the process, you've sinned. You've lied to me. So coarse jesting, you can think of making light of others' trouble and suffering, inappropriately joking about things that are not for normal company. Jokes that hit below the belt, if you've ever heard of the phrase. And I think, and the commentators that I, the commentators that I read had this, uh, made this point as well. I think what's in view here is not to take each individual term and go, okay, exactly what does that mean? It's more to say, what's the cumulative effect of all three of them? And it's really a person who's immature. If you know someone who, especially if it's someone who's a professing Christian, who engages in vulgarity and foolish speech and coarse jesting, what you think is there's something not right here. Maybe they're an immature believer. Maybe they're not a believer. But we as Christ followers are supposed to be dignified and mature, unwilling to make light of sin or speak as to hurt other people. And that's where Paul, as an example, says what's in character, not out of character, what's in character is that we give thanks to God. That's speech that actually honors him. <clears throat> Does this mean we can't engage in comedy? I think of myself as a pretty funny person. And it's kind of like a spectrum. In the middle, people who just like me would, might tell you the truth as to whether I'm actually funny. People who hate me and people who love me will definitely tell you the truth as to whether I'm funny. Ask Brittany later. I like to think of myself as a funny person. I like making jokes. I like making people laugh. It's not to say that comedy is a sin. But it is to say we ought to be very thoughtful about how we engage in comedy. We ought to be very thoughtful in how we speak. Because how we speak is like an outward, an outward gesture of what's in the heart. And if that, again, is attached to the, your, your label as a Christian, then it could contradict Christ, or it could, be, it could conform or be in line with Christ. So the reason for avoiding vice, and this is, this is where Paul comments on the lists of, lists of vices, the reason for avoiding these vices is consistently cited in who one is. It's not fitting to the saints. In other words, it's not fitting to you if you're a Christ follower. Uh, it's out of character, out of the character of one who is a dearly beloved son or daughter. Instead, it means that our words should follow our commitment to Christ, that we should speak and act in such a way as to honor the Lord. 
All right, as in verse 5, we're given a warning. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral, impure, or greedy, notice he, he repeats the first set of vices, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. All right, so let's start with what this does not mean. It would be inconsistent with the language of the rest of the letter of Ephesians to say that this means that if you, who are a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, find yourself committing the sin of covetousness or the sin of sexual immorality, that you are no longer a son or daughter, right? This is an issue. Salvation is an issue of status, as I've already said. You don't suddenly fall out of uh, God's household just by sinning one time. And then you can think about this for those of you who have children with your own children. They're going to disobey you, yes? Does that mean they're not your son or daughter? Of course not. That's a status. They are part of your household, even if they're disobedient. You don't disown them just as soon as they make one mistake. A loving parent would never do that. God doesn't do that to us. Rather, what it does mean is that the professing Christian should not be characterized by these vices. These vices are going to exist in us. You take a brand new believer. He's been regenerated. He's been saved. His sins have been forgiven. But he's still coming out of a world that influenced him for however long it influenced him before he was now taken into God's kingdom. That effect is still going to be there. The sins that I wrestled the hardest with before I was a believer, I still wrestled with as a believer. But now I found that I was being enabled to get rid of those sins. One thing that might surprise y'all is I used to have a very fiery temper. I used to explode at the people around me. And it took years to see that vice slowly die off in my life. Sometimes it still comes up. I get frustrated. I'm tempted to be angry. But I found that the Holy Spirit has enabled me with practice to say no to the temptation. And God gets all the glory for that. Because there was a time as a young believer where I thought that was impossible. Or I was tempted to think that was impossible. And then I'd have to go, have to go back to Scripture to tell me, no, it isn't impossible. It's just really hard. It's really difficult. Because there's a world around me that's very annoying. And there are people that are really annoying. You know what I'm saying is true. If you have an anger issue, there are a lot of people around you who will justify your sin. And what you have to learn how to do is stop letting that happen. They may have even sinned against you, but your accountability is to God alone. So, the issue that we see, what's of a degree is sanctification. We, we will become, <clears throat> over time, as we grow in Christ, we're going to become more like Christ. That's a change in degree. The change in kind has already taken place. We are sons and daughters. So, how should we respond then to this verse? Does that mean we should ignore it? Okay, great. The warning is not about me. I'm totally fine. Well, pretty obviously not. Paul is writing to Christians for a reason in this church. So, so how, how should we respond? 
And I'm very convinced that we should respond in that case with humility and repentance. Because every time I read this passage and I look at myself, I see I have an inheritance, but there's vice in me. It's still left over. Some of it's really difficult to get out. Some of it, thank God, is already pretty much wiped out. But there's still some there. Even if it doesn't fall within this list of three, there are others. There are other lists of vice throughout the New Testament. Pick one. Read through it. Paul then says, those who do these things don't have an inheritance. You might go, I have an inheritance, but I could list like five of those that I struggle with. Or more. Or all of them. Because our lives are to be characterized by who we are in Christ. But it's like, it's like, sludge or uh, in the Old Testament sense would be dross that's burned off of the silver to refine it. It's still left on and we all know it. We can all look in ourselves and see it. So I think the proper response in verse 5 is to actually identify where we don't line up, where we live in a way that's inconsistent with our calling in Christ, with who we are in Christ, and to actually lay it down. In other words, we're supposed to respond to this verse with repentance. All right, so verse 6. Let no one deceive, let nobody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. This verse, for me at least, was the difficult one because it seemed a little out of place. It seemed like it was starting the next section. Um, but I think it... It is sort of a transition point, but it's a transition point that takes what's already been said and then transitions to what Paul's about to say. So in that sense, it is grounded in what's already been said. Remember in verse 1, we are called dearly beloved or dearly loved children. In verse 6, we are, or the Ephesians, are exhorted not to be deceived because God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience for these things. Changing around the word order, same idea. It's because of these vices that those who are characterized by disobedience face God's wrath. In other words, it's A, not A. Here's your life as you are in Christ. They're the sons of disobedience. And you can see why this would have been really important in Ephesus. We live in a culture that is, is sliding towards greater amounts of immorality, that's for sure, but it's still deeply influenced by Christianity. I hope you see that. I hope you see, you know, if you read history, I've been reading, uh, recently I've been reading through a textbook um, on medieval history. It goes all the way from the 4th century to the 12th century. And if you read about the world during this time period, what you realize is that we, we don't live in a Christian nation in an obvious sense, but we definitely live in a much more deeply Christianized nation than anything that came before us. Christianity still runs deep in this culture, especially the United States, more so than in Europe. And if you just go back 50 years, that's increased all the more. Being a Christian and being American, unfortunately, we're wedded together very tightly. For the church in Ephesus, 
they're coming out of Greek paganism. They're coming out of a world where the, the very notion of impurity connected with the sexual acts that they're performing, just that, that, that connection isn't even there. It takes the Jewish evangelists to the Gentiles, the ones who, the one who in, either directly or indirectly brought them to faith in Christ to say, yeah, your manner of living's got to be way different. And we see this on the other end in 1 Corinthians, where Paul has to call the Corinthian church back to what, how they were supposed to live. Because, again, they're believers, but that vice still sticks. And they easily get deceived into thinking that, kind of like in an antinomian mindset, that they can live in a way that is completely opposite of who they are in Christ. I would say that in our culture, that contrast is becoming more stark, maybe than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's becoming more obvious what it is to be a Christian as opposed to what it is to be sort of just a normal, everyday, non-Christian American. And especially if you get on the furthest end, you, you, take, you, know, you take your family up to Seattle, you're really going to see a difference. Or even uh, uh, Tucson, when I was visiting Tucson, walk into a local bookstore and everything around me is new ageism and paganism and the Christian theology section is like one little square in one bookshelf and one tiny section where it also shares like Muslim theology beside it and some of it's in the same like little area. Oh, but the books on spells and black magic, that's everywhere. The contrast is getting stronger and so as we see, and we praise God for it, as we see people who were not believers become believers and come into this congregation, in a lot of ways our project's the same as Paul for Ephesus. They have to learn a whole new way of living. We had to learn it too. But we can, we can learn from how Paul addressed the Ephesians in order to stress that contrast in a way that is loving in a way that's compassionate, but also in a way that's stark. That person's going to come in with a certain conception of love that could easily lead them towards heresy. Or at the very least, gross biblical error. And so we have to stress what it means to follow Christ, how it changes not only our beliefs, but our character, and how that's defined by who God is. All right, so in closing, I know I've gone a little long, sorry. Uh... I can summarize, to me it's easy to summarize the, the letter to the Ephesians in, in basically two points. Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians is about the content of salvation on the one hand, and it's about the consequence of salvation on the other. What's the content of salvation? What, is, what, what does the gospel actually do and say? What do we actually believe? And then how does it make a difference in our lives? So the consequence follows from the content, or put another way, if the content is right, if what you believe is right, your actions will tend to follow that. Do not be deceived. The idea there is in your beliefs, that's going to affect your actions. So it is because, because I am in Christ a beloved child and a saint that I can strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to imitate God. We should be encouraged in our pursuit to exemplify God's character in ourselves since the God who saved us lives in us. Not only do we 
have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes our desires and then enables us to actually act in a way that's consistent with those good desires. And then when we do stumble, because we will, and we'll be tempted to discouragement, we can know that our status before God hasn't changed. We're still dearly loved children. What God does is he forgives us, and then he calls us to live in a way that's more holy, closer to what we are in him already. So if you're listening to all of this, and none of that makes any sense, feel free to talk to one of us. Uh, learn what it means to follow Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.